ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back once again to the Rounding the Earth podcast. Rounding the Earth is a multimedia education project based on the popular newsletter series published on Substack, written by applied statistician and educator Matthew Crawford. Topics of discussion range from critical analysis of conventional wisdom to Bitcoin and everything in between, in particular, the ongoing plandemonium, so-called. Our goal is a careful examination of important topics and perspectives shaping the world that too few people talk about. Subscribe to Rounding the Earth on Locals, Substack, and Rumble to join a burgeoning research community and to help us unflatten the Earth. Shout out to all of our BitChute viewers. My name is Liam Sturgis. I am a musician, music producer, and writer slash editor coming at you live from the beautiful Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and I will be your host for today. And now, please allow me to introduce the author of Rounding the Earth and my co-host for the podcast, Matthew Crawford. Good afternoon, Matthew. Good afternoon. Have you, you've never been to Vancouver? Uh, I have. Well, no, no, no. Um, okay, so I, I'm actually technically not sure. <laughs> it was but a while. I, 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 I have not. I have not. Um, I, I went to um, uh, Tillicum Village is the closest I've been. Do you, do you know where that is? I, I think I'm saying that right. That, this is like this is way back in high school. Uh, I was in Seattle. Okay. And I know that um, we went to this like island. Um, that I guess is still, you know, Washington, but uh, technically I've only actually crossed into Canada once. Hmm. And that was, that was actually way back in middle school. Um, like just uh, Windsor, like across from Detroit. Yeah. Yeah. The other side of Canada. So yeah, that's the other the side of Canada. Actually so, been so, in Canada. Huh? That's the only time you've ever actually been in Canada. That's the, unfortunately, unfortunately. Uh, so I've, I've been close several times. I've, I've been in upstate New York near the Niagara area, and I've been in uh, in the state of Washington. Um, uh, so no, I, I have not been to Vancouver. Well, you're welcome anytime. And this came up because uh, we have uh, uh, our, one of our lovely guests for today who, well, I don't want to give away too many details, but let's just say we were talking about Vancouver and let's get her thoughts on my beautiful hometown and others uh, allow us to introduce our guest, Jessica Rose. How are you, Jess? Yes, I am beautiful. <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> um, now, I don't want to give away details of your recent trip, but uh, what, what are your thoughts Not on that? I'm back now, so we can talk about it. Well, so you were in Vancouver. Give me all of your best compliments about my lovely city. <laughs> um, see, the thing is, I've been there many times, and it never made the impression that it made on me this time. So it's probably more that I've changed. Uh, since last being there, but I, I found myself really aligned with it, um, which is nice. I mean, it, it's always uh, nice to find alignment when you travel. Um, I was I was just stricken mostly by how much you could walk and, and where you, you could walk anywhere, which, uh, like, I didn't go to the dangerous areas, but, um, like, East Hastings or whatever, but, like, I... I didn't feel restricted in my wandering, which I really appreciate. Um, lots of green spaces, um, huge trees, like ancient trees, 
which I really love um, in Stanley Park. And I didn't see any mountain stuff. Well, I, I mean, I did see, but I didn't experience the mountains this time. Um, nice people, uh, lots of variety um, in what you can, um, I suppose, experience in food. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, it, well, yeah, but it was very expensive. I was shocked by how much food has uh, risen in cost um, in BC, at least, because that's that's where I was. Um, eight bucks for a loaf of bread, for example. I mean, I, I just, I, I was literally blown away by that. Every time I asked, uh, you know, for my, my price or whatever, for the thing I wanted to buy, I was literally just like in gawked mode like what what you know how how are people living you know day to day who have families and stuff but um anyway the good stuff uh it's beautiful it's spring so the weather was it was just i don't know if it was because i was there but it was just spectacular the whole time i was there like it was it was warmer in on the mainland than it was on the island because I was also mm. on the island on Vancouver Island but um, yeah it was I was surprised it was only three days so I probably just had some kind of honeymoon experience you know what I mean it's like oh but I mean it was I liked it it was it was a nice time well I'm really happy you got to come back because for those who don't know Jessica is Canadian been living in Israel for uh, for how many years now uh i don't know forever <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> long enough that one forgets um and you tell it like just just broadly you you went to other parts of canada as well give us just the coles notes of uh, the rest of your trip um victoria was nice uh it was changed though from the last time i've seen it because of the covid shit um just kind of more oppressed more homelessness uh, more, I don't know how to describe it. It was something in the people that you felt when you walked by them. And it's always kind of been there in Victoria. Like Victoria is kind of a weird population of like people who go there because they want to be homeless because it's warm mm -hmm. and old people. So there's kind of like a non-communication there anyway amongst, you know, the community, but it seems enhanced somehow. It might have just been me because I'm, you know, I'm like a tourist or whatever, but. Um, it's also but the capital of the province. It's like our Washington, D.C. or our Ottawa, you know, so mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of stuck up types. There's a lot of government people who live there. That might be it. No, you're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. No, there was a lot of st stick uppery. I noticed that, too. Um, but, yeah, it was beautiful as well. I mean, it's uh, lots of flowers and natural beauty, um, enormous amounts of wealth, which was um, crazy. I mean, there's no two homes that look anything alike. I mean, this this is a more to do with the architecture, but it, it was, yeah, it was, it struck me how everybody had a unique home with land. It's not something that you experience in many parts of the world anymore. Um, and I went to Pender Island, which is one of the smaller islands that you were probably close to, Matthew. Um, and that was lovely. Um, you know, small community, everybody knows each other type thing. Um, 
but yeah, I just, I tried to experience as much of the nature as I could. Um, and, and I found plenty. So yeah, it was, it was a hectic time. It was quick, but it was, it was nice. Um, I was pleasantly surprised because I thought there was going to be a lot more um, stuff that would make me want to throw things. <laughs> yeah. You come at the tail end of that and hopefully not the calm, you know, in between storms. Uh, well, I'm glad you had a good time. And as you suggest, next time you come, we're going to get our drink on drink referring to tea. Of course we're going to, in fact, we should, we should do high tea. There's a bunch of high tea places here where we can just pretend we're royalty. Now, let's do oh, that. And this Ooh. looks nice. What is this? Oh, I just looked up Vancouver trees. Just to see if I, <laughs> see if I can see like some Stanley Park. What's that? It looks like Stanley Park. Yeah. There are some massive cedars there. I mean, you could make an entire ship out of one of these trees. Not, not that I want to cut any trees down. No way. Wow, look at that. Where's that? Uh, let's see. Oh, Capilano uh, Suspension Bridge. So that is on the North Shore. That is, I, I, I wouldn't walk there, but it's so close to where I live. Um, and the... yeah, you can go over a big, uh, uh, a big, well, a, a very tall bridge that freaks people out um, over a waterfall that you don't want to fall into. Uh, but it's no. so beautiful. Okay, well, if the world goes Mad Max, let's just take that area over and build a treehouse. And well, they're already built. That's the best part. Yeah, well, mostly. <laughs> um, well, this is awesome. Um, now, today, so we've got Jessica with us now, and it looks as though we've got Jumi coming in a little bit later, and I think JJ is still coming in a bit later as well. So um, do you guys want to officially get started with our second monthly Awfully Interesting Science Journal Club? <laughs> yeah, might as well. I was actually I, – I, I thought I was um, – um, uh, throwing a paper in that would be kind of like, um, you know, one that we would tack on or, or if we had extra time or something like that, because, um, you know, here we are with so many scientists who, I mean, there's so many papers that have to be read constantly. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I figured there was going to be something that was going to be very sort of timely and upfront. And I was going to throw this one in as an example of, uh, of science that looks sort of Orwellian upfront. <laughs> um when we do have jumi now hey okay jumi welcome hey how are you jumi good well you we're doing a little bit slower introduction uh than usual we haven't even gotten started with the first paper because uh jessica has been telling us about all the awesomeness of vancouver and mm -hmm. and of course liam's uh liam's eating that up so i am <laughs> um jumi uh uh, how are you doing? How, how have you been since we last spoke? I'm doing well, very well. Excellent. Um, what, what's new in your world uh, of science and uh, other exciting things and orthodontist appointments? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I came from an orthodontist appointment. I had Invisalign and straightened out my teeth and everything. Um, no, yeah, same old, just uh, right in my sub stack, you know. Um, yeah, it's kind of funny how some people... Um, are interested in certain types of articles and sometimes I don't want to write those articles, but I, I can see what people are interested in is a little different sometimes than what I want to write, you know, interesting. <laughs> like what? Um, I think sometimes I, I want to like write about 
things having to do with like general science and like you know like um sometimes like what like there was this paper it was like a sociology paper and it seemed like from what they found like large fields of science um sometimes people will just hone in on like the top few papers and they'll ignore the rest you know which is kind of interesting right um but maybe it was the way i wrote it i don't i don't know if anyone read that article but anyway it's fine and people want to read about like vaccine injuries too i, I get it so <laughs> that's my audience i think so you're finding yourself uh aimed in the direction of what your audience wants to hear i think and we've had other like jj's been um making some really good points about that lately that maybe that phenomenon of if you have something that i suppose in your instance we're talking about the audience seems to want to hear something so there's pressure to then write about that um do you yeah. jessica and matthew as prolific substackers yourself do you relate to this you guys were nodding emphatically <laughs> well uh, i mean i i, I ultimately i got into substack because i had all this writing that i was already doing on like you know the chloroquine wars the early treatment medicines initially and then and then also um uh when monica hughes called me and said um yeah you need to start taking a look at the, the vaccine statistics in early 2021 after i'd been already writing for a year about the early treatment medicines um so so in a sense i kind of ran toward that but I, you know, if I hadn't, I could certainly see that uh, that's what people, you know, want to be talking about and hearing about because they're trying to make sense of it because there isn't a lot of sense in a lot of what's gone on. So, um, and, and, and I think people are, people are uh, terrified and rightfully so of the amount of change that's going on in the world. And so if people can find a way to shuffle the deck uh, I, I don't in a natural way, then maybe they can create an orderly amount of disorder in the world again, or something like that, right? Like, like people people want um, people want to push the clock back to um, when it was that it didn't seem like controlled horror. <laughs> yes, people want uh, those those who can be honest and understand science to be writing about it. Uh, right now. So I, yeah, uh, it doesn't shock me at all that, that Jimmy <laughs> would get pressure or we not pressure, but like, in, you know, um, interest, encouragement from an audience to, to be, you know, doing those things. And, and she writes uh, unique articles, uh, you know, insofar as, you know, pandemic science is concerned. So, um, you know, Jimmy being sort of outside of the pressure of uh, mainstream academia, um, means that uh, she is she has been able to be, you know, a more free voice and has put enough care into you know writing articles that people didn't want to see. So yeah, I can see why people appreciate it. Jessica, do you find the same uh, the same phenomenon in your work? Um, not as much, actually. I. I, I read a lot. If if I had the time, I'd read all of the comments, but sometimes you get hundreds. And um, my readers, I swear, like um, Substack is so wonderful for its ability to to bring together really, really interesting and smart people. Like my, my readers are so cool. Um, they give me feedback on, on, on things that I write about that make me feel like I didn't even understand what I was saying when I wrote it, but they do. 
which is really interesting because it was through the process of reading what I wrote that they understood something. You know what I mean? So it's like this interesting feedback. And I wrote one lately. Um, it's the first one I've written in like two and a half weeks. Um, it, it was my, my, uh, my answer to I can define a woman, you know, because there's a lot oh, of yeah. these uh, people out there these days who can't seem to define uh, what a woman is when asked. Um, <laughs> so I thought I, enough. So <laughs> I wrote a biologist. Set. So apparently that well, that, and, and it's funny you say that because I said I can define a woman, and it's not because I'm a biologist. <laughs> That's actually the title. The opening so, line. Yeah, yeah. I, I got so much positive feedback from this, and a lot of people said this is my favorite piece of writing that you've churned out like i mean okay may, maybe they, they like it more because it's not some jargon about immunology <laughs> but uh yeah i i find um a lot of the the articles that i write on the fly that i don't think about it's just like something i need to get out of my head are the ones that people respond to the most and so if anything is requested it's it's more of those personal stories because i i agree with what everybody you know you guys are saying I think that people are really looking to have someone, someone to relate to because it, everything's crazy. It's like, what the hell did I just see on Twitter or what did I just hear in the news or what did just happen in my kid's school? Like, I feel like I'm in loopy land. So it's, it's, it's very grounding um, reading a lot of the, the sub work. So I'm happy that, uh, that I can be one of those, um, grounds for people because uh, it really helps me too because it's like you know I, I learn a lot when I write these things like what a woman is <laughs> anyway yeah now, read that one I just, I just came back and we're defining what a woman is which is fascinating because... <laughs> well there's a new paper out on it <laughs> oh goodness. yeah not a paper uh, well, I'm curious what Matthew's definition of a woman is. I, I hate to put you on the spot like this. I know it's controversial. Yeah, what's a woman, what Matthew? A woman? Come on. <laughs> it's someone who identifies as... <laughs> it's written right there! <laughs> now, for the for what is potentially the actual answer to that question... Um, a reminder in the description no matter where you're watching i have put these Substack links for jumi for jessica and for jj so don't hesitate to go and get caught up if you haven't yet if somehow you haven't yet subscribed um you guys should do that um so let's use this opportunity to um jump in is there oh very nice so yes i think all four of us have cats somewhere in our background mine are currently hiding behind my green screen they oh. <laughs> there's a one. Uh, there's a one. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, so let's use this opportunity. Let's jump in now, Matthew. You've got a paper pulled up. Do you want to? What, what? What is this? What are we going to look at here? Okay. Um, <clears throat> this is a paper. This was interesting. Uh, it, it's one that I came across uh, during the pandemic in 2021, um, because Eric Topol had tweeted it out. And it was um, it was about whether, um, well, I, you know, I guess, I guess uh, we could uh, 
take a look at the abstract here, but it, it, it's it's about selection pressure. And um, and it, the interesting thing about the paper to me, well, it, it's about selection pressure on SARS-CoV-2, right? And and like emerging variants. Um, and well, you know, let, let's take a look at the paper. Um, it, it's going to involve sort of a unique statistic um, called Tajima's D. So before we actually um, get into reading the paper, I was going to ask um, if uh, either Jessica or Jumi has like a common sense explanation for Tajima's D because um, it was something that uh, like for me, my familiarity was actually only what my wife had mentioned in passing conversations before. So I actually had to look up Tajima's D and learn a little bit about it in order to read the paper. Um, and, and that's the way, you know, uh, statistics goes sometimes, right? Like you have this, this metric that gets used in a field. Um, and if you're not familiar with it, you just look it up, you learn a little bit about it. And, uh, and so, <clears throat> yeah, what, what is there, is there Jessica or Jumi? Are you, are either of you familiar enough with Tajima's D to, uh, to give it some sort of like a, a common sense explanation? I am not. Sorry. Okay. Well, I, I'm going to do my best having looked it up. In fact, and, and maybe I'll just, um, I'll pull up, uh, you know, Wikipedia article. Now I do before you answer, <clears throat> JJ is in the background and he might have, he might have an answer to that question. Oh, now, I don't want to bring him in while he's in mid he's, he's eating something. So <laughs> I, I, I don't want to be that guy who, who jumps him in without permission, but this, if he has an, okay, I'm going to bring him in. I'm going to bring him in. JJ Kui. Sorry, I was eating. I was eating my oatmeal. <clears throat> Wait, was wow. it Pajama's oatmeal? <laughs> no. Um, why, don't, why don't you take a shot at explaining it first, and then if if I can't augment it, then I won't. Okay. Um, well, so there, there, it within microevolution, you you've got like a genetic strand, and you've got two different things going on with mutation statistically one of them would be um mutation rate and one of them would be mutation frequency and mutation frequency is just how often one of these um you know like 30,000 for for, for SARS-CoV-2 you know we'll, we'll just say a 30,000 nucleotide sequence of any sort and and these individual nucleotides uh have these single nucleotide polymorphisms that's how most of it occurs right it's like you know a little change here, doop, change there, you know, an A, a T, a C, a G, whatever. Um, doop, 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 doop. And they happen all over the strand at, at random intervals. And, uh, and so those are single nucleotide polymorphism SNPs. Your mutation frequency would be how often one of those blips occurs, one of those SNPs, SNPs occurs. <clears throat> so there's mutation frequency and then there's, and, and, you know, you could describe that as, as some amount, you know, some number of SNPs over some period of time. Um, and, and it doesn't necessarily have to be SNPs. You can have insertions and deletions, but most of it's SNPs. Um, but then there's, there's mutation rate, which is actually how far um, that sequence drifts from its original position. Right, you have this original state, and, and it's sort of hard to imagine what drift is because, in, in essence, you've got this like 
30,000 dimension, you know, 30,000 Taurus dimension, you know, um, model of, of what that nucleotide sequence is. But, um, you know, if, if you've got like a, a cluster of genomes and then it, it sort of moves in it, you know, outward in a direction, I kind of, I kind of try to imagine it as Conway's game of life and, uh, and thinking about, oh gosh, maybe I should, uh, I should restart this. Um, thinking about what would happen if you started sort of, you know, evolutionary progression, but then let's see, what am I able to do? But then you have like some sort of um, something in the mix that pushes the, what would be the natural evolution in one direction, right? Um, so that the changes are pushed. So this line that I'm drawing is, is, is perhaps an evolutionary pressure. And you can see that the original guy is, it's so small. The original, you know, thing was like right in here. Right. But all the changes are, are happening, you know, further to the right in, in the screen mostly, because that's where I'm, I don't know, putting pressure on the screen. I don't know if, if I, if I said that in a way that's sort of understandable or not, but you wind up with, not just the mutation frequency, but the mutation rate would be um, <clears throat> a measure of how fast ultimately those two things happen in combination. And uh, Tajima's D specifically, let's see, um, and I'll have to go back and read exactly how it's computed again. Um, but specifically, it is an interplay between mutation frequency and mutation rate. Uh, like a, a ratio between these things. So how, how close am I, JJ? Um, well, as I understand it, you're not too far off. Um, it, it gets more... I was going to see if I could find a paper that would help us do this because it's I'm still I'm still getting a grasp on on how this stuff all manifests. But the the gist of it is all the, the another thing that you should have in the in your model in your head is the idea that when changes are made that are silent nucleotide polymorphisms that doesn't mean that nothing has changed so um there was a science paper in 2011 that had a cover on it where the zipper on its mouth of a lady and it, the cartoon was a zipper on the mouth that was being opened because this science article was trying to talk about something that geneticists didn't want to talk about, which is that a lot of the genetic disorders that we have in humans are actually defined by polymorphisms, which don't change the amino acid. They're silent mutations. And these silent mutations, for whatever reason, change the tertiary structure of the protein or how it's regulated or how it gets phosphorylated or how it gets glycosylated. We don't know. But the end result is, is that the redundancy of this code which they are using to describe whether or not the the virus is changing in response to vaccination um is something that they they understand how it occurs and they understand the mechanism by which it occurs and the the basis for which it it occurs is something that they're not acknowledging i'm kind of because of the fact that that the silent mutations are not silent so they label this as as synonymous or non-synonymous mutations and they're trying to give you the idea that 
synonymous mutations don't do anything and non-synonymous stations do. But in reality, there's evolutionary pressure on both of those changes because it's likely that the synonymous change is not synonymous except for that it doesn't change the amino acid, but it likely has some, some impact on the tertiary structure of the protein or how it is post-translationally modulated or how the mRNA is pre-translationally modulated or post-translationally regulated. And that's how all of these silent mutations result in genetic diseases. And it's also how they are oversimplifying this signal to try and describe whether the virus is, is changing in response to the, the vaccination or not. Because in reality, we expect to see these changes in a certain ratio. And that certain ratio seems to be independent of the preservation of the protein in the spike. But with other proteins, and this is getting too deep maybe, but other proteins are more functionally constrained so that even single nucleotide polymorphisms result in loss of function. So you can imagine a, a perfectly constructed enzyme is also dependent on the exact sequence that's there because if you change, the, a silent mutation will result in a slight folding, which will result in a loss of efficiency of that enzyme. It's very likely that the RNA-dependent RNA polymerase and its associated proteins are all highly constrained. That's why they're very homologous across all these coronaviruses, whereas the spike protein isn't. And what they find in this paper is that there are very many parts of the spike protein that are almost, doesn't matter what they change to. And so if you vaccinate people to that protein, there's lots of room for it to change and avoid this memory, whereas all these other proteins don't have that that space within which to to maneuver because they're already so functionally constrained. And so they're trying to tell a story that this is a signal of evolution when in, in reality, they're not being very precise about what these changes mean and don't mean and being very simple about how synonymous means one thing and non-synonymous means another. And it's much worse than that. There are a bunch of questions I would want to ask, but I, I feel like we would wind up going down uh, the uh, uh, virus-like particle rabbit hole, um, and I, and I want to steer us toward the uh, the actual purpose of, of today, which is to which is to take a look at a scientific paper and see what yes. it is that we can do, and and so the audience can can watch what happens when several people you know together pick apart a paper. Um, and I may even go out and find uh, Eric Topol's tweet because it's actually, it's kind of funny. Um, it, he, yeah, I'd love to hear what he said. Well, uh, I, I think he had no idea what the paper said, which, which <laughs> it reads even the, the abstract, it even reads contradictory to me, right? I mean, uh, they contradict themselves in the abstract as far as I can tell. Okay, so let's take a look at the paper. <clears throat> um, and that was that was my interpretation was that uh, was that the authors stated uh, something that was very, very different from what their actual data showed. Yeah, they, they, they say in the abstract that that full vaccination against COVID-19 with other mitigation strategies is critical to suppress emergent mutations, but then their data shows that the fully vaccinated people are producing the mutations. It's, it's extraordinary. Right, okay, so yeah. Um, it, so let's see, what, what is their statement? Taken together, our data suggests that vaccination plays an important role in the purifying selection force 
of SARS-CoV-2 Delta variants. Purifying selection force is with you, <laughs> young Skywalker. <laughs> um, so uh, it, any other thoughts on, on this? Like, you know, what um, has everybody read the paper? I skimmed it. I have not. Sorry. Okay. Um, so, but well, it's very confusing. I have the same impression from having skimmed it. Um, Jumi, uh, Jumi has to clean the chalkboards when we're done. Then if she has. <laughs> okay, because th this is going to be a little harder than usual because um, uh, there, there's more probably math that's new math uh, to the average reader. Uh, this is not as easy to read as a lot of biology papers. But, you know, so here, here's, here's the abstract to say, our data suggests that vaccination <laughs> in the Oh, my gosh. Course. I guess I forgot that part. I don't know. I, I skimmed it very much. You all skipped it. If You all skimmed it if you didn't see the first sentence in the introduction and start laughing. Um, COVID-19 vaccination resistance has become a major challenge to prevent global SARS-CoV-2 transmission. Now, can I write That's off the, the back? And then... And then the introduction says legally required vaccination against various infectious diseases and essential to public health policy in many countries. Damn. Yeah, okay. That's See, I was going to point out the word resistance has multiple meanings, neither of which is, it's not clear which one it is. Because right. we're talking about em supposed emerging variants because of, you know, the immune pressure. So there's perhaps a resistance there. But no, they, they quite clearly, because of later in the introduction, mean, I don't want your shot. That qualifies as resistance vaccine resistance wow. yikes yeah I, i've actually wondered multiple times or many times during the pandemic if um if there is an attempt at lying without lying going mm -hmm. on in many places um you know uh signaling information anyway um so introduction legally required vaccination against infectious disease is essential to public health policy in many countries okay <laughs> um so let's see, where, where do we get to, where we get to the point here? Mostly blathering till we get down here. Is there a correlation between mutation frequency and vaccination? Okay, and so as I said, there's mutation frequency and there's mutation rate. Frequency is just, you know, that's how often things are changing along that strand. That's how often you have the, the SNPs. So let's see, to explore this question, we analyze the correlation between the rates of full vaccination and the point mutation frequency. So um, they, they look at data, you know, collected from 20 different countries from these genomes. And this, this assumes that all of this, this assumes that all this data is collected with high fidelity. But, you know, that, that's a question left for another time. They're, they're taking in data and so they find that uh, mutation frequency is logarithmically reduced as the full vaccination rate increased in most countries. And and does, does that make sense? Do, you know, intuitively, does that make sense? Yeah, the purifying selection. Yeah, it makes sense to me. Um, if if you're sort of cutting off. Uh, you know, if you think of um, of the potential genomes as this, you know, 30,000 dimension space 
right? It, a selection pressure is something that takes away some of the domain of that space. So, you know, you, you wouldn't really have snips into that, that space that there's pressure to avoid. So you would think that you would have reduced mutation frequency. So that part makes sense to me. Uh, intuitively. And and I would have said so if I were writing this paper, I would say I would expect this to occur, you know, just on a pure mathematical basis. If all the space were open, and not that it is, but if, if, if or, or, you know, even if a subset of the space is open, and you cut off some other subset within that, then uh, you have, you know, less domain for this thing to get into. Um, you know, uh, for for uh, for genetic sequences to be to uh, emerge in into right. So, okay, so that makes sense to me. So, to our knowledge, this is the first evidence suggesting that vaccinations could successfully suppress viral mutations. Okay, um, so I mean, we have an expectation, and we're we're seeing the expectation happen. In real time, since the spike protein is the target of the vaccination program, we further examined mutations of Delta variant spike gene. Likewise, we found that the mutation frequency of the spike gene is also logarithmically reduced as the full vaccination rate increased. So, so they're they are looking at at um, you know percent fully vaccinated versus the mutation frequencies that are found. And let's take a look at the picture that they get <clears throat> pictures. So you can see the more vaccinated people are, the less mutation frequency there is. Okay. So, but then uh, Tajima's D brings in mutation rate. And, you know, what do you guys think the mutation, you know, what should the pressure do to the mutation rate, not just the frequency? Should the rate be also suppressed? No, I mean, it's going to go up. <clears throat> it should go up. Should it? You know, you're, you're cutting out a subset of space for this thing to move into. Uh, if they're looking at mutation rate in the spike, and then you you make antibodies to the spike, it's I I, I don't know. It's it's tricky because I don't think that that mechanism is really influencing too much. But but I, I think you're right. I think frequency goes down and rate goes up. That that that's my intuition. Why does the frequency go up? I don't know if I'm the frequency sure. goes down because it is constrained. Uh, you have uh, space that you can't move into. You have sort of immediate rejections of certain single nucleotide polymorphisms. Okay. Yeah. That, yeah, that was the earlier thing. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, and then rate would go up because you would you would see the vir the viral swarm being sort of pushed out. Of you know where you've got territory on one side, per, you know perhaps that is being cut off, and so it it has to um, it has to mutate in 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 a direction that that you know gradually pushes it away from the territory that's cut off. 
I think we're oversimplifying the fact that making immunity to the spike is going to necessarily benefit and reduce the space that they can move into because there's lots of ways that off-target antibodies can assist infection. And so then you would you would not have that selective pressure. The the so we have to take that into account as well. That that if the antibodies are not helping you fight the infection, but are enabling it through FC receptor infection of immune cells, like a lot of people think, then a mutation frequency would go down also because the because the vaccine is actually not putting pressure on the spike, but making it more likely that you're going to make antibodies that help help the spike. And so, if in that scenario, if the if the majority of the antibodies that you make are not specific for a neutralizing site, but are are essentially neutral or or bad for you then you would also find the mutation frequency would decrease in the vaccinated people because they're not putting any pressure on the virus by, by making these off-target antibodies to it. You could explain it two ways. Yeah. So I, I guess um, the, the vaccine is only specific to like 13 ish percent of the sequence. And there, there could be other interactions to the rest of the sequence. That but would- even the, yeah, even, even the, it, that's the whole basis of 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 antibody dependent enhancement that the antibodies bind to the protein but the protein can still every do everything that it normally does but now with an antibody bound to it it has a receptor for macrophages so the the virus is still infectious it might even be stabilized in a highly infectious form because the antibodies stuck to it but then now you also have an immune receptor present and so it makes it it increases its tissue specificity or increases its infectiousness with the presence of the antibody. Um, that's, that's how dengue fever works. And a lot of other, these, the, the antibody dependent enhancement is because the antibodies bind to the glycoprotein, but do not neutralize it. And so then you just have added infectiousness for the macrophages that take it in. <clears throat> that would not normally take it in. You see, that's the tricky part. <clears throat> so I can see why the mutation frequency would go down in those, but I think it's, it's it, to me, it's 50-50. You could say that the vaccine, if it makes good enough spike protein, which you and I both know it doesn't, but if it did make good enough spike protein, you might imagine that it produces specific pressure on the spike protein, but it's much more likely that it, doesn't put pressure on the spike because it makes crappy antibodies which are neutral or or bad for you and then that's the reason why the mutation frequency goes down that's my guess because i've i've really become convinced that this idea of enriching the virus is a way of of pretending that the transfection worked because i don't think it did yeah and 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 as you guys know I, i have i have believed for two full years um, that that the vaccines did not work. Um, that's been my belief for two full years. Uh, when I looked at the national data, going back, I was looking at the R World data uh, set. Um, there's a positive correlation between vaccination rates and COVID-19 rates and mortality among nations around the world. And that's what I found all the way back in March of 2021 and kept up with that for like eight months Um, So anyhow, moving forward with this paper. So we have some intuition. We also have the possibility that the data isn't even real. 
Um, you know, it, it, it's very possible that that uh, SARS-CoV-2 sequences were sort of, you know, modeled and put into the database. Uh, I'm bringing that out as 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 a, a, a hypothesis that I thought is more and more realistic the more that I've learned. Um, but let, let's just let's move on with the paper and sort of see what it is that they come up with. Um, I don't know uh, how much of the technical detail we need to discuss here, but you know, I'll let you guys tell me you know when to when to stop here as we kind of scroll down and and, and you know look at what's going on in the paper here, <clears throat> and and we see. There's some discussion of synonymous mutations or silent mutations. And, and JJ, I do want to have a conversation with you separate at some point about, about uh, synonymous and non-synonymous mutations and virus-like particles, because I've actually wondered if, if, um, you know, if Omicron was engineered like I suspect it was, um, then the reason for the high percentage of synonymous mutations might be to make it continue to fit a specific virus-like particle, if that makes sense. Do you hear what I'm saying? I am. I'm just writing it down. <clears throat> Interesting. I have to think about that one for a little while. Yeah, I, I don't know how well a virus-like particle fits, you know, any particular viral strand. So I, I, I wasn't sure if, if there was some sort of, like, attempt to... Um, make it continue to fit by specific. Why, why are you um, just curious? Why do you, I, I thought you were just as convinced that maybe Omicron was always there. What, what is tipping the balance for you right that, now? That was, that was one of my hypotheses, which is that Omicron was in the background, but the more that I've, I've, I've thought about viral swarms and the more that I've read, um, I, I like the survival of the flattest um, principle which is that I don't think that the viral swarm is like, you know, these very far apart clusters so much as I think that it's, uh, that it looks more like the Milky Way galaxy, you know, with, with a, a dense core and, and, you know, less and less material sort of um, <clears throat> in a related way around that core. Um, so there is the possibility, like I, I, I still think about the, the possibility that, that, um, what do you have in that core? Uh, I know it's in my core, but I wonder what you have in that genomes core. Genomes that are closer to each other. You know, um, you just, oh, I think if you want to model it correctly in your imagination, you have to think about genes that are closest to each other. Because that's the swarm illusion, is that RNA viruses have this beautiful assortment of proteins that they use to attack us, when in reality... They have this set of proteins, and almost all of them are incredibly conserved. That's why they've always used pan-coronavirus primers to find them, because these proteins are all homologous. It's the spike protein that defines individual variants because it's the most varied protein. But I think they're, they're pulling the wool over our eyes on that one. And every time you find a spike protein, you get to claim a new strain. Every time you find a spike protein, you get to claim a new virus. And they've been doing that for way too long, um, when in reality, our immune system focuses on that center of the Milky Way, the genes that don't change. Yeah, it's funny to have a paper like this that claims to be looking at all of this genetic variance when the testing that was going on after each uh, variant emergence, um, they were determining a variant not by specific sequence, but by S-gene target failure. 
Yep. Meaning, meaning that um, we're going to call it whatever the new variant is simply because it doesn't match the last spike protein. And here you have this paper that, that seems to, have, to be taking granular detail from 20 different countries, which contradicts the idea that we would need to use uh, S gene target failure to identify. But maybe, maybe somebody could say, well, that's just a matter of slowness of production of the tests. So I'll, I'll take that on good faith for the moment. Um, I'll, you know, I don't, I don't know if that's a cartoon version or not, right? I don't know if that's, if that's a, a Scooby-Doo, as you put it. Um, so, you know, continuing with the paper. So, you know, we, we've got. Um... They, did, they did do it. Give them credit, though. They did do it for the full genome and for the viral spike gene alone. Um, I don't really see how they're displaying it yet, but table one seems to be both full genome and spiral spike gene but i don't see how they divide that so now we have this um uh non-synonymous to synonymous ratio yeah and the more fully vaccinated the more we have non-synonymous um mutations as opposed to synonymous mutations which, which fits the idea of the vaccination providing selection pressure. Mm -hmm. Because now you have mutations that are, you know, that, that lead, that make the amino acids functionally different. If, you know, it forces them to be functionally different. Um, they look more different in order to avoid the, um, the antibodies. And if you go back to um, Trevor Bedford's talk at the, um, Fred Hutch Institute in 2021 or two, where he's talking about this non-synonymous and synonymous ratio in the spike protein, or rather in any viral gene, he states very clearly that it is extremely rare to find this ratio higher than one in any flu gene. And the ratio at the spike um, and his papers was at some point over one and a half, like they show it here for Israel. So um, it's extraordinary because the virologists have decades of data that show that none of these genes change at this pace. So something is going on. The question is, are they just revealing a background and, and pretending it's changing? Or is the background really changing and they're just emphasizing a change that doesn't matter? I think that's probably what it is. And was this curve sculpted, right? If if there was a if these are biowarfare agents that are being released, then you would expect someone to have modeled information like this, sort of along the way, and decide where to release it according to where they were going to sort of force vaccination rates. So, but the, you know, that's the conspiracy theory conversation. It's a real, it's a realistic conversation. But let's go ahead and um, and just sort of take take this on good faith for the moment. So um, you know we can see more synonymous mutations um, as a proportion the more people are fully vaccinated, and that makes intuitive sense. Okay, so <clears throat> what is their conclusion from this? Well, let's see. Let, let's read this here. Neutrality test, I guess. Yeah, um, synonymous versus non-synonymous. Non-synonymous means you're going to be changing the 
the uh, physical structure of the protein formed by a greater amount. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, it just you have to remember that the spike protein has a lot of freedom to do that in some some regions of it. There's a the functionally constrained portions are the portions that that that, that hinge out and that are hydrophobic for for membrane oh, fusion. Um, Sorry. No, my cat's just. Nah. <laughs> I, I didn't know if you were making a comment on the paper or not. No, cat, cat comment. <laughs> I mean, sometimes I talk to they don't, they don't report. Yeah. Like, you know, sometimes I'm just like, you know, you, you are such a good statistic. You're such a good statistic. To the cat? <laughs> Never mind. Never mind. I, 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 I find it interesting that they don't give the non-synonymous to synonymous ratio um, for the full genome. They only give it for the spike gene. Um, and they only give it during the time the vaccination is being rolled out. Right. I would have liked to have seen it like before, you know, like, yep. is, it, is it like stable? And then it started to change after the vaccination rate. Yep, I, I really think it's interesting. It's an interesting paper because they don't get what they want and they spin it as though they did. Um, okay, so, so okay, I, I agree with you. Tell 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 us tell us what they wanted and tell us what they got. Well, what they wanted to find was evidence that the vaccination limited the changes that they would observe. And the, the two ways that they show it are, one, they look at a mutation frequency, which is calculated by a very interesting computation, which is somewhat dependent on the, very dependent on the fidelity of the sequencing that they did, knowing that they're just telling you up here that they got sequences from all these people that had full coverage of the genome without really explaining adequately what that really means to them and how much you know, how much faith they have in the consensus genome that was reported because each of these sequences that they're going to use as a basis for whether or not there was a mutation is a consensus sequence. So, you know, they're, you're assuming that their average sequence and the polymorphisms that they claim to find are not errors, which they definitely could be depending on the depth of coverage. And then they're looking at full genomes from Australia, France, Germany, Indonesia, India, Ireland. They were all collected from the Global Initiative on Sharing All Influenza Data, the GISED database. And the mutation frequency is calculated by um, the total number of instances of polymorphisms detected within the genome. And then they divide by a, a factor of the nucleotide length in the genome and, and the, sequence, the number of sequences that they find this in. So that's also difficult for most people to understand but when they do the sequencing they get repeated copies of a amplicon and then when they line them up the the number of times that the amplicons agree at a particular nucleotide gives them some idea of how likely it is that that nucleotide is actually conserved across most of those particles 
And depending on the nucleotide they look at, they could get a very high probability or a very low probability of that nucleotide being right. And they don't seem to make any effort to distinguish between single nucleotide polymorphisms that are real and ones that might not be. And they just classify them as synonymous or non-synonymous. Again, ignoring the fact that protein folding is dependent on these silent mutations where the amino acid isn't changed but still results in a different form of the protein. And then if you do change the amino acid, of course, you do change the protein even more. And then what they do is they show you that the mutation frequency calculated in this manner is lower in the places where the vaccination occurred. And then they parade that as evidence that the vaccine is doing something useful, which is lowering the mutation frequency. However, we would point out, of course, that bad mutations in very few number could still ultimately be disastrous. And so the number of mutations that occur is not necessarily the best readout for whether or not the vaccine is stopping the mutations or limiting the, the evolution of the virus. And looking at non-synonymous to synonymous changes, we find that the vaccinated people appear to be propagating amino acid differences in the spike protein that non-vaccinated populations do not propagate. So where the mutation rate may have gone down, the possibility of dangerous mutations appears not to have gone down and maybe even is higher in those people that are vaccinated because they have the more consequential non-synonymous changes being present. Wow, that was too much words, too many words. Because they, they say in the final paragraph that uh, we need to suppress the generation of deadly mutations. So, uh, yeah, it's, it seems, again, there, there's a bit of a contradiction in there. I just wonder, like, how much of this would have happened in the absence of the, uh, the injectable products. Like, um, I'd like to see that side by each plot. Right. It's why I wanted to see um, something like, you know, uh, all, all of these statistics presented prior to vaccination. You need that because otherwise it's like, oh, yeah, look what we found because of the injections. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. Did, you know, we're, we're things... injections. Yay. And so by hiding that, could they be hiding something like um, like the fact that these uh, variants were actually, you know, pre-engineered in the lab? <laughs> or just already just they found all the variants in the background and, and arranged them in such a way so that they knew what they needed to release to tell the story. You know, that's possible. That's possible. I, I, I just don't believe that um, all the variants were together in one cloud. Um, that, that was something that I considered. Uh, and, I, and I guess I'll still consider it. Um, but I, I'm less likely to to think that they're all there in the swarm than I was before, uh, it, uh, particularly Omicron. Maybe, maybe the regular variants were. Um, maybe, maybe um, you know, it, like you know, I was explaining like Milky Way with like a dense core. Maybe it is that you have you know Wuhan strain here and Delta here and and Alpha and Beta and whatever. You know, um, maybe, maybe some of those early strains were near enough e uh, each other to be part of the same core. But Omicron is uh, so far away evolutionarily 
It's like a 10-year evolutionary distance according to these mutation rates, uh, sorry, mutation frequencies. In the spike. Frequencies or rates. I mean, the, the, the rate is, is, um, is uh, contained in the frequency, right? You can't have a rate higher than a certain amount. You can't have a rate higher than the frequency. I still think we've got to, we can't just give them the, the spike protein as their basis and, and their, their solid handled in the sense of you can't let these evolutionary people sell the spike protein as the thing we should watch. If all the other proteins are not changing, then our immune system is not being challenged. And I, I can't stress enough how Omicron is different in the spike. It's not different in the XON gene. It's not different in any of the non-structural proteins, one through 14, it's different in the spike. And that means very little to our immune system. It really does. Unless we're focused only on the antibodies that bind to that protein, then it, then it matters, I guess. I, I, I want to I hear what thoughts this is bringing up in Jumi and Jessica, because um, I know part of where JJ is coming from, because I've been watching, uh, I, I, I watched your last video where this or two videos ago where this came up specifically. And I know um, you emphasized how Matthew was writing about the Omicron hypothesis at a certain time and how it compared to how in particular uh, Brett Weinstein has been talking about it. Um, and so I, I, I understand a bit of the recent context, why this is sort of a important reconciliation of ideas, but um, I want to hear what, uh, Ajumi, what is coming to your mind uh, for, for myself and the audience who are following along mostly, <laughs> but need perhaps a little bit of a bridge of, of what we're talking about here? Um, what, what is this talk about Omicron as it relates to the paper or more generally? Uh, what, what, what are your thoughts right now? I don't know what to believe when it comes to Omicron, and I, but I haven't looked that deeply, especially at like comparing sequences. But I'll say that there was a paper that, um, Matthew, I think we chatted about this a little bit on um, Signal, that, that paper with the, the prison, um, uh, the prison inmates, and it just seemed like Omicron wasn't as infectious as we thought, you know, and this was like a, you know, like in prison cells, like people should be like, you know, giving each other infections left and right. So that was one thing. But another is uh, just related to what this paper is talking about is, uh, I don't have so much to say about the paper, but more like what could be the mechanism behind how the vaccine might possibly be influencing like the virus like this. Like, it, it, the, like there's animal studies, right? Where it seems like, like sometimes occasionally it looks like it lowers the amount of virus in the upper lungs, but usually not the, the lower lungs, you know? So like, let's say that we make antibodies in the, and then there's antibodies in the blood, right? From the vaccine, there has to be some way for it to get into the lungs. And I know of a mechanism in the lower lungs where like when there's inflammation, sometimes like, like when you get an infection, you can get some of the stuff in the plasma going like crossing into the lungs, you know, but I don't know if that happens in the upper lungs. So like, what's going on? I mostly just have questions. Like I, I'm very confused about all of this, honestly. Um, it's a very good point uh, that you mentioned about the prison study. Um, uh, I have, I have not reconciled the claim that Omicron uh, was discovered in, you know, South Africa, Botswana, 
um, and like within like 17 days had visited like every discotheque in, in Europe. Um, I, I just, I, I have yeah, not, I, I have not found that very believable at all. If that were the case, then I think that the original Wuhan strain would have, you know, covered the earth in, in much more rapid time than it did, uh, probably even before we would have known it was out there, right? Um, <clears throat> the, you know, R, R is something that, that changes by context. You know, you, you go to a slum in India and the R for a coronavirus can be 200. It, it, it can just, you know, sweep through the population, just, you know, boom, like wildfire. Um, the idea that that Omicron, you know, was several times more infectious or something like that, um, it, it just doesn't jive with <clears throat> with a lot of things that we've seen. It does jive with how quickly that wave occurred in early 2022, but um, but I think that there's some sort of shenanigans there. Um, but I'm gonna. Uh, this is something I, I didn't know where this was in the paper um, when I originally, um, you know, read the paper. Uh, there, there's another graph that that was really important to me, and and maybe maybe it was in the appendix or something. But anyway, one way or another, I I put it in an article that I wrote um, year and a half ago ish, um, and and this is it right here, and so we've got you know uh, these Taj Mahdi you know computations down here. And, you know, we can see, you know, uh, UK and India, we have Tajima's D being pushed very negative after vaccine rollout. And then later we have Australia being pushed very negative, though that's, I don't know, uh, Australia is sort of a weird thing because everything happened differently there. But here's the thing, when Tajima's D goes more negative, that's when you have a that's when you have a recent selective sweep, as it's called. That um, you have a bottleneck um, that is constraining, uh, you know, where the virus can be in that sort of Milky Way galaxy formation. You're cutting out some territory, and therefore it shifts away from from where it is that you've got the the blackout or whatever. And so you have, you know immediately higher rate of evolution, but it, you should have some sort of re-equilibrium, some sort of new equil equilibrium that it reaches for stability. So you should see it go negative, but then come back up. And, and, and we, you know, right, you know, here we just see this selective bottleneck pressure and it's sustained. You know, it should come back up to positive, but we don't have that in this paper or they cut us off to, to not see any further progression. Whereas I think the more interesting thing would be, you know, both the time before and the time after we're seeing this. And, you know, given, given what this, I would, I would have think, I would have thought that like a follow-up paper to this would actually be the more interesting paper. And there was no follow-up to it, was there? This wasn't even, this didn't get past preprint, am I right? Is this still not past preprint? They have data from flu that they could they could use to show us what a baseline looks like here. I mean, it's, it's all very, 
it's very all all very uh, sketchy just from the the language that they choose to open their abstract and their introduction with. It's 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 clearly a biased paper. <clears throat> now, I I don't want to jump to the end if there's more to go through with the paper itself, but I do think there's some interesting questions then if we explore the premise that this is biased. Presumably, there's a reason why. So what we did last time was we went and did what everyone should do and looked at the funding and the conflict of interest disclosures. Um, is now a good time to move into that realm, or is there anything else we wanted to cover before we go a little more meta? Oh, it, it's not very interesting yeah, for this paper. I yeah, don't there's think. nothing there. there there's now, no funding and no conflicts, apparently. Now, I, I want to challenge us to think one step further. Is this where we stop? Or is there still useful information to glean that you would think would appear in those funding and conflict of interest areas? Spoiler alert, the answer is yes. Okay. What did you find? So let me see where it is. Um, so if you look at, yeah, the, the author affiliations, um, tell me what you're seeing there. Uh, Agriculture Biotechnology Laboratory. So these are biotech... Lab so there's a specific company mentioned. Yeah. Oxygen. Oxygen. Um, I can cut out a bit of time. Do you mind if I share my screen? Go ahead. So um, I thought that was interesting. You know, just finding that company, it, it doesn't mean that it is a, a funding source that should have been included. It doesn't mean that it's a conflict of interest per se. But I do think it is still um, probably um, good information to have because as, as of now, it is the only information we have about who these people are and maybe why they would have put together such a paper. So this is Oxygen. It is an agricultural biotechnology laboratory. They apply novel biocontrol solutions to human agricultural and environmental disease to reduce the chemical loading of our soils and waterways. Um, and I, so here's, here's a brief overview of, uh, of their thing and just top right here, I believe, I guess this may refer to, um, maybe there were more studies they published on COVID, but I, I think this is in reference in part to the preprint we just looked at. And I'm, I'm not entirely sure how, I guess, I guess the rest of their pipeline has involved work with viruses. So it's not totally out of the blue. Um, but they're developing stuff. So this is a, a, a commercial company. They do have products that it, it seems to me uh, they would benefit from somehow publishing the research the way they did in order to advance their um, the development of whatever it is they're doing. They're an agricultural biotech company. Um, and, and the the uh, co-founder and and uh, chief scientific officer, uh, Yay, uh, uh, spent 16 years at. Johns Hopkins. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. And you know where he was before that? Well, Cornell. But then before that, he was a medical commander in the uh, Taiwanese army. Um, so uh, just interesting. So I, I, I'm not totally sure. I don't, I don't know what product this would be in reference to. Um, I, it sounds like they've got private investors. So it's nowhere near as obvious as last time where you've got all, oh, you know, conflict of interest with Pfizer or they're developing a nasal vaccine or whatever. Um, but I, I, I think, I think the, 
the the minor takeaway lesson I would put in here is the information on funding conflict of interest, who these people are, isn't necessarily limited. You don't want to stop at the blank disclosures or the blank, uh, you know, conflict of interest area. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't get any feeling, though, that we were, you know, I, I don't think the paper itself is necessarily um, where there's misleading going on. But, you know, talking about Baltimore Biotech, um, what would you assume Baltimore Biotech would be associated with? I mean, yeah, they, they say agriculture, right? But, you know, what what's in Baltimore? Military? Oh. Well, yeah, you're, you're real close to Annapolis, right? Um, that, that's U.S. Navy. And, of course, we know that the U.S. Navy has been the branch of the military that has been uh, used as a major arm of, you know, like bioterrorism defense type stuff, uh, Operation Sea Spray and subsequent operations that that very likely took place uh, according to congressional testimony. Um, so, you know, this is somebody who may have been brought to the U.S. from the Taiwanese army um, who had a you know, proclivity toward uh, toward this type of stuff and stationed at, uh, you know, first at, at Johns Hopkins and later, you know, built, uh, helping build this company. So that, that is interesting. That is interesting. So the, um, we should be viewing this from a lens of possible, you know, um, biowarfare operations. So um, just as an anecdote, you know, the guy that uh, I was working for at the University of Pittsburgh was an active uh, nuclear submarine captain, uh, semi-retired. And, uh, you know, with full clearance and everything, he graduated top of his class in his engineering um, class. He was not an idiot, um, but he was definitely in the Navy and definitely still had all the clearances that you would expect from somebody who was a captain. Um, and he threw me out with, with great prejudice while he was wearing two masks. Um, <laughs> well, whether or not his Navy had anything to do with that, but he was definitely a Navy guy and he didn't do anything for me in respecting other Navy guys. That's for sure. I hope he's an anomaly. <clears throat> um, so guys, there was a suggestion in the chat um, on uh, another paper that um, was being held up. What was the exact quote? Let's see. Uh, held up in pro-vax camp as C, it creates T-cell memory too. Now, I'm under no illusions we have time to do a full uh, critique, but I wanted to bring it up and see if this is something you guys have seen and maybe there are some initial um, perspectives that we can offer. Let me just pull this up here. You guys have time for it? I mean, we, we you know, this was a, a long discussion on one paper, so we could call it a day here, but, uh, you know, I'm happy to keep going if you guys are. I don't know how much time you guys carved out for this. I'm all right. Let's do it. All right. Yes. Yeah. And to be clear, I'm not asking us to do the same amount of time we just did on this, but I figured it'd be good to give just a brief, a brief take a look at. So are you guys familiar with this paper? Uh, it looks like it just came out uh, just under a month ago. Spheromers reveal robust T cell responses to the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine and attenuated peripheral CD8. How do you say that CD8 plus? Yeah, or positive, probably. Okay, CDA positive T-cell responses post-SARS-CoV-2 infection. Um, that, that's a lot. Are you guys familiar with this already, or is this brand new to you as well? 
I've new. looked at it a little bit, yeah. but a lot of I, it. I haven't looked at it. I haven't it. seen the paper, but it it makes sense in the title. Yeah, new to me. I have not been reading as many. Know, what, is it, what is a spheromer? That's the only thing. I don't know. I assume it's like a. Right. I don't know what that means. I can guess, but never heard of it. There's some technique that they used. Oh, yeah. It says it. That's what I kind of thought. Some kind of technique to isolate the T cells. Very interesting. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, I uh, I also have not read it, so just just to do what I always do, I'm gonna start at the the disclosures uh, part because that usually. Well, uh, what do you recommend in terms of order of how people would look at a paper like this? Do you how do you guys approach it? Do you do what I just did and you jump right to the bottom? Do you because uh, I think the interesting part here is showing people each everybody's process, right? Um, so if someone like like me is going through and starting to read something like this, something we're not familiar with, what what what's the first thing you guys recommend people do? Read the abstract. Read the abstract? Yeah, and, and use the abstract to parse the title because the title is one of the most carefully, you know, yes. pieces of language in the whole paper. If they chose the word may, they really meant the word may. And if they chose required, they really meant the word required. And then you got to decide whether or not they're allowed to use that word or not. That's really, that's the strategy I have. So what are they saying they're certain about? What are they speculating about in the title? It says reveals robust T-cell response. So their technique, whatever spheromers is, is revealing a robust T-cell response to the vaccine and an attenuated peripheral CD8 T-cell response post-COVID infection. So there's two things we should expect to see in their data. Robust T-cell responses after the vaccine and an attenuated response in the CD8 positive T-cells post-infection. And so now the, the trick is, are they really going to prove that to you or not? I think if I remember correctly, and, and this is just with a disclaimer because I it's been a while and I only glanced at this, but it was... It was post-infection, people who had been infected, and then they looked at the, re the response after vaccination. So I think they were comparing people, but all were vaccinated, but, but comparing people who had been infected before and people who hadn't. I think. Right. Yeah. And they're okay. looking at CD8 only or, or T-cell broad, and then they hone in on CD8s for the peripheral um, pool because they found oh. something. They put MHC molecules on little spheromers and then they suck up the T cells with them. That's funny. Okay, so so uh, help me out here. So the way that this this outline is started, I was expecting something that says abstract, and I was going to go there, but I see we got a graphical abstract, which is not what I was expecting, and then we have a summary, which is also not what I was expecting. So when when you're saying let's look at the abstract, what would that refer to? How do we translate that to this? Well, graphical abstracts are awesome. Um, I, I find them, when they're done right, they're really descriptive of all the important things that happened in the paper. So that's, that's always a good, uh, if it's good. I mean, it's not always good, but, uh, and the summaries, you know, it's, it's basically the abstract. It's the same thing. So uh, I'd go for both of these. Um, the only thing about the graphical abstract is that, you know, you, you, you you have to have a background in everything that they're talking about to put everything into context. So right. It, it can be difficult to interpret. Um, it well, definitely it, looks pretty. 
Yeah. Yeah, they have they have fake people there. That's nice. Are we to are we to guess from this that the COVID nineteen patients are also vaccinated? Because it looks like a continuum. Yeah, that's what uh, Jeremy said. Oh wait, right? Where is that? In the graphical abstract, it looks like the COVID nineteen patients are taken from the unexposed subjects that received the Pfizer vaccine. Is that not the case? And then they also have recovered patients receiving the Pfizer. That's so weird. These people are cheating all the time. <laughs> um, oh, wait, wasn't this also the one where um, the, 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 some of the COVID-19 patients were like in some trial or something? Didn't Amanda point that out? Matt, you know what I'm talking about? Yes, oh. I think so. Right. They were in some trial for some like treatment, some COVID treatment. Right. And then they use the same people for this. Yes. Yeah. Like, like some of them, some of the COVID patients. It was so weird. It was like, why can't hey, here's something out of left field. If you made that spheromer and then sprayed it on people, it seems to me that would be really nasty. <laughs> because it would activate, it would bind to all T cells, right? It's like a MHC multimer. It's like a, a universal displayer of antigen presenting cell and I mean, I don't know which MHC, if it's, if it's really the HLA subtypes, then they're really, that could be an incredibly dangerous thing to have a powder of. Yeesh. Yikes. Maybe I'm completely crazy, but I think that would, that would make your, if you, if you had that in your body, your T cells would go bananas. That's why they can pull T cells out with it. Um, and furthermore, it looks like I don't think that using that spheromer, you're going to pull out SARS-specific T cells, but it does say that they're doing that. I wonder if the the peptide is the spike. That could be the peptide MHC multiper. I wonder what that is. I got to read that. Okay. Well, let me you let me, me this link. I'd like this link. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I put it in the private. Oh, okay, chat. I got it. Okay, yeah. I'm going to switch over to the summary now, and uh, maybe this is, and and we can we can. Uh, sort of wrap up after this, but maybe this answers some questions that were not answered in that graphical summary. Um, T cells are a critical component of the response to SARS-CoV-2, but their kinetics after infection and vaccination are insufficiently understood. Using spheromer peptide MHC multimer reagents, we analyzed healthy subjects receiving two doses of the Pfizer-BioNTech BNT 162B2 vaccine Vaccination resulted in robust spike-specific T-cell responses for the dominant CD4-positive HLA-DRB1 stuff. This is crazy. I don't know how to read this thing. The, <laughs> what is that referred to? So, uh, uh, human, human leukocyte antigen is the same thing as an MHC molecule. You usually say MHC molecule or major histocompatibility complex in animals. Mm. Say HLA in humans, but they're the same thing. Okay, cool. And CD8 uh, plus T cell epitopes, antigen specific CD4 plus and CD8 plus T cell responses were asynchronous with the peak CD4 plus T cell responses occurring one week post the second vaccination boost. Now that's confusing because I thought that was the primary series and not a booster. Anyway, whereas CD8 plus T cells peak two weeks later, these peripheral T cell responses were elevated compared with COVID-19 patients. 
We also found that previous SARS-CoV-2 infection resulted in decreased CD8 plus T-cell activation and expansion, suggesting that previous infection can influence the T-cell response to vaccination. So isn't that saying don't get the shot if you've had COVID? I, I think that's a pretty good short through the corner way to say it indeed, um, which I think a lot of people have already kind of known. Um, it does seem to suggest that. Yeah, this part of the discussion has been happening for uh, for 20 months now. Um, yeah, the, the T cell immunity from um, you know, post-infection seems to be better than than from post-vaccination. And so the premise of this coming into the discussion was that apparently it's being held up in the pro-vax camp as C, it creates T cell memory too. So I'd like to hear from you know from each of you does is is that what this seems to show without go on a first glance keeping in mind we we have not done a full deep dive what's your impression uh just based on the little bit we've looked at it what of the paper yeah well it's funded by gates so i don't care what it says ah (laughs) (laughs) seriously that's i i went to the you know that's the next step for me. Like, look at the funders. And then if it's not conflicted, then I'm more interested in reading about the methods to find out, like, exactly how these spheromers work, for example. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. It's like. Um, I, would, I would piggyback on that. I would piggyback on what she said, that you can look at this methodology. And <clears throat> what I found with my brief sele- brief reading is that they can't really differentiate what kind of CD4 positive cells they are. So they don't know if they're pulling down a, what ratio of regulatory T cells to non-regulatory T cells they're pulling down and whether or not they're, um, there's a couple different kinds of CD4 positive activated T cells and not all of them do the same thing and they're just pulling them all out. And the same, to a lesser extent, there are fewer differences between the 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 pool of cda positive cells that they would find and so it to me um the the trick is to know what proportion of these helper cells are regulatory t cells because that'll determine how how the crescendo and decrescendo of the immune system uh play out and so if they're not differentiating between those those populations then they can't really be sure if there's a parallel and so you can say yeah they're activating t cells but if they're activating only active t cells and not regulatory t cells then there won't be a transition to memory cells in anybody that's vaccinated whereas after infection you still have the whole complement and so you get a regulatory change that sends some t cells into apoptosis and others into a memory state but you need that ratio to be correct and i don't think they can measure that with these spheroids no, they didn't measure as far as I can see in the methods. There's also something Im- interesting in the limitations, like if you go down limitations of this study. Uh, Those are also really important to read. Yeah, oh, yeah. The, our study has it's limitations in that we measure honest. peripheral T cell responses and differential tissue location of immune cells after mRNA vaccination starts with infection can contribute to the differences observed between the cohorts. So if, what does that mean, peripheral T cell? So if they, I, I think, and I have to look at the study a little bit more carefully, but I think they only looked at blood samples, right? But um, what you find in the blood 
is different from what might be going to your lungs, like homing, like T cells homing to the lungs, which is what you would probably want if you got a lung infection, you know? Absolutely. If you had all right. the T cells in your lungs, you'd have less in your blood. Yeah, this has been a common theme of a lot of the vaccination studies is that um, is that they look in the blood and not at the um, yeah, not at this you know surface layer between us and where respiratory viruses are are infecting us, right? Um, uh, it, it, it's it, this is part of the illusion um, that they seem to be intent on, and it may be that that. <clears throat> that there is that there is something going on that you might measure uh you know in the blood and think oh well that's good that shows that it's working but if it's not working at at that surface you know uh level then you're not actually preventing infection so it's like okay so maybe maybe you don't prevent infection but then there's some fight happening in a part of the body where it doesn't even matter and, yeah. it, you know, is that the fight that you want? Or are you changing the grounds of the fight to the cardiovascular system? And could this be part of why it is we see so many cardiovascular problems? And bears, for instance. Well, um, that's nuts. Uh, Jessica, thank you for pointing out the funding section, because not only is it Gates, it's also uh, my my nemesis is the wrong word my point of interest over the last couple of months open philanthropy that's of course a uh, effective altruism giant uh, uh the justin moskovitz facebook mafia um, yeah that's that's ftx taking money from the crypto space and pouring oh, it into the pandemic space which is um is that true well, open wow. philanthropy, yeah, open philanthropy is is sort of one of the the big, like the biggest actually probably leaders in the effective altruism space, and they're of course behind uh, funding virtually everything related to the COVID response, uh, <laughs> including the tabletop exercises and uh, all all the sci-fi stuff. Yeah, and there um, there is something very very weird that, that needs further investigation, and and I, I wish I could have spent even more time on it than I did. But uh, when I had my dinner in Austin, uh, one of the people who came to that dinner admitted to me having funded one of the mRNA vaccines uh, secretly using Bitcoin. And, you know, then, wow. then seeing all of this space. Yeah, uh, the guy's name is Brian Bishop. And he is, um, uh, you know, he's in the transhumanist community. He's in the DIY transhumanist community, meaning like, you know, let's do experiments on ourselves and see what we can accomplish and figure out. And he was uh, you know, like putting together a company for designer babies at some point and kind of got pushed out of certain circles as a result. But um you know, then, and, and I have no idea whether or not he has further connections to the FTX people, but interestingly, uh, he, he does have connections or he at least told me he did know some of the people from like the PayPal mafia and, uh, also some of the people from the, um, the media group that created the global COVID summit. Yeah. Round table media, right? Round yeah. He, he, he's friends with, um, with multiple of the principal or the, the, uh, the board members. Of roundtable media so like that that was uh that was a little bit you know weird to find out and i have no idea you know necessarily what all of these connections are but you know we have connections literally between you know we have connections on both sides 
with cryptocurrency funding both sides of the pandemic debates. Liam, put that link up, would you, that I just sent to you and scroll through it. This is the reporter NIH.gov site and the one NIAD grant that was reported there. The NIAD grant that was reported in that paper stems from 2006 to 2022. It is continuous, but it's shared between several different PIs, and it starts in 2006 at Stanford or three with Ann Arvin with protective mechanisms against pandemic oh. respiratory virus. And it's continuous funded grant by the NIAID for literally 20 years. It's exactly actually 20 years. And you can see how the, the PI changes as the, the grant moves through Stanford, but it stays with the same cardinal driving number. I don't know for sure what that means, but I do think it means uh, a different kind of priority funding in the sense that they didn't have to reapply from scratch every year, even though it's a wide variety of PIs that get listed as the project leader. It's extraordinary. There is no one, there's no one in neurobiology that has a track record with a single grant application that has been renewed so many times in a row. Nobody. And, and just understanding the, the timeline here, yeah, it starts in 2003 and it gets renewed annually, but 2008 and 2009 is when it kicks way into high gear and it never stops, as you say. Oh, yeah, those are all collaborators. Now I see why those other names are there. Now I get it. Okay. I see. Wow. But it's that's extraordinary. It's really extraordinary. Well, you know, just to be clear, um, Stanford was one of the two competing arms of the Human Genome Project, right? Um, you, you've got the Wash, Washington University side, which sort of became more famous just because they, they they won the race by like three weeks or something like that. Right. I mean, it was it was literally like a, a neck and neck uh, race to map the human genome. But the um, the other side of that was the Stanford side. Where was Kevin in that McKernan? Um, I, so, uh, you know, MIT had stuff going on um, within. I mean, MIT was you know, obviously one of the centers where a lot of genetic research has been done, but like the primary sort of competition to map the human genome once the very first time was WashU Stanford. Groups. Okay. I see. Well, this has been uh, fascinating. I think we should aim to wrap up now. Um, I, I really appreciate how much insight you guys have been able to bring. I, I think the thing that I like about doing these shows is it is about showing the process. And um, I think there are a lot of people um, who are, you know, scientists uh, of their own caliber who are tuning in. And a few people have said, you know, I'm a, I'm a STEM student and this is fascinating. But then there are a lot of people like me who are sort of past more of the conspiracy theory type videos. You know, it's very interesting. But at a certain point, you really want to get into the nitty gritty of what, how, how the world actually works. And this is it. This is going in and trying to piece those pieces together. Um, and it's not that any given paper we're going to pick will answer all the questions. But the act of going through the process, the practice of it, I think will help refine skills that can be applied then to just critical thought in the future, but also how to read other papers. Um, so I appreciate it very much. Uh, yeah, thank and, you. And and, and, and another piece of that is uh, the fact of the matter is, as a group, we are better at reading these papers than we are as individuals. 
Um, and, and it's going to be different from paper to paper. Uh, you know, different people are going to have different strengths and be able to pull different pieces out. Uh, Jumi mentioned something um, which I, I didn't actually read this paper prior, but my wife had read it and made some comments on how the cohorts were sort of, you know, selected in an interesting way uh, <laughs> and, and may not be sort of true cohorts for the, for the kind of comparison that the paper claims to be making, right? And, and different people, um, you know, with their different levels of experience and different things that they look at coming together and having a conversation are more likely to, um, you know, uh, look at all the, the proper corners of what's been done better than any one person reading a paper. So this is, this is how a lot happens, you know, with scientific discussion, especially when, when several people come together outside of the lab where it happened. We are not specialists at what, what goes on in that lab. Only the people in that lab are specialists in what goes on in that lab. And so it, it takes time and it takes, you know, um, a, a lot of points of view. Jumi, are you doing any cooking shows? You really look like you have a kitchen that's ready for a cooking show. So if you want to, like, you know, do a mise en place while we're doing this next time, <laughs> cutting your vegetables and stuff. What should I cook? <laughs> like a multitasking journal club. It's very. It looks like a very cozy kitchen. Jumi and Emu. <laughs> Emu is the cat, by the way, for anybody who doesn't know. I. <laughs> um. <laughs> Okay, guys. Well, I want to remind everybody that the Substacks and or websites of all three of our fantastic guests and friends here today are in the description of all of the platforms wherever you might be watching this. So please, if you haven't yet, go and visit and subscribe to all three of them. Um, I want to go around and, and make sure we have a chance to plug anything else you guys might be working on or anything I might have forgotten. Jessica, what do you have going on in the next couple of weeks? Oh, my God. Um... <laughs> Well, catching up, um, but I'm doing something really important for my, my, our country. Um, I'm going to be providing testimony for the National Citizens Inquiry, I believe it's called. Um, yeah, Dr. Laura Braden presented, I think it was today or recently. And I, after I finished listening to her testimony, I was like, well, I don't need to speak anymore. <laughs> she yeah, was so I watched that. She was she was incredibly good. Yeah. She yeah. Um, she's a good friend uh, through all of this. I mean, as good as you can be with someone without meeting them in person yet. But she's 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 hardcore like Canadian beauty, and uh, yeah, she did a fantastic job. So it's not a plug for me. It's a plug for the inquiry and for her testimony. Like, listen to um, hers. Mine's going to be coming up sometime between the 12th, 13th and the 15th. It's going to be uh, live streamed some, at some Canadian hour in Winnipeg. Oh, yeah, there's my name. Yeah, um, expert on the VARES data. For some reason, they wrote expert in big letters. So, <laughs> and, and by the way, about VARES or something. So, <laughs> I, I watched uh, Dr. Laura Braden, who's, a, who's the immunologist near the top of this list. Um, yeah, that's the uh, she is excellent. Um, yeah, she, she really was. She did a bang up job, man. Yeah, I I, put, I think I posted the video in um, in our locals group, um, but I, you know I would encourage like people who haven't seen it like Google that. Uh, she she's excellent. Yep. Yeah, she well, really covered. Are all these yeah. hearings going to be recorded? 
Yep. Yeah, so they're all live streamed and they're all, uh, as far as I know, they're made into clips uh, after the fact. And so the website is nationalcitizensinquiry.ca. I'll put that in the uh, respective chats right now. Um, this is a uh, a um, this is a next step in uh, a series of events that have happened. One of which I was very happy to have been uh, part of, called a citizens' hearing. Um, and it's going on across Canada, both in person and online. And I'm hoping uh, I might be myself testifying briefly in front of the Vancouver one. Um, no confirmation there yet. Oh, wow. That's a cool symbol. It's got a person embedded in a maple leaf. That's dope. But it's also, doesn't it look kind of like the classic like NIAID antibody? Yeah, it does. <laughs> it does. It's got all the things you need. Indeed. Isn't that fun? I just want to see if I can pull this up. Um, but yeah, so we'll make sure the link uh, to that is uh, available to everybody. Oh, oh, did everyone catch that? I think there's you. you. Oh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> this was a, anyway, that's my little claim to fame. But I actually have nothing to do with the NCI, full disclosure. Okay, so that's wonderful. Um, Jumi, what do you got going on in uh, in the next couple of weeks? And is there anything else that I have failed to plug? <laughs> no, I think you already mentioned it, my sub stack. Wonderful. Okay. That's it? That's all you're going to say? Okay. <laughs> um, the weather's getting better. I'm going to get on a motorcycle soon and teach immunology from a motorcycle for fun. But other than that, I'm just doing the same thing I always do. Um, I'm waiting for Jessica to do some um, from the surfboard clips where we hear about immunology and see the wave or something like that. But, you know, they have yeah. GoPros. You know, you can do that. You could... Oh, oh, I do do that. that. That's my profile picture for my Twitter account. I took that photo myself of me nose riding. It's really hard. Um, but we haven't had waves in, in ages. We, we have something coming up. But the, the weather modif modif modifiers here are really like yeah, um, too hard. So they imagine. only make waves on the weekends. So my theory is that the weather, weather modifiers are surfers because they have to work during the week. And so they make the waves happen when they can surf. I'm not kidding. It's only UV on the weekend, I swear to God. And then don't I don't want to surf because there's too many people. Oh. You should get a login for Harp because then you could change that if you wanted. <laughs> oh, okay. Let, let's you were just nearby. That. It's just north of here. It's just, it's just due north into Alaska. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah. Anyway, um, JJ, how about you, my friend? You've had a you you did two weekends in a row presenting to uh, medical doctors for COVID ethics. Fantastic presentations. Um, anything else you got going on uh, apart from the motorcycle? Yeah, sure. I'll tell you. I'm going to do a Star Trek um, series on YouTube, and I'm probably going to premiere it in the next couple of days. <laughs> what does that mean? A Star Trek series? I, I've heard you say it a few times. <laughs> Um, I think it's best if I just leave it, but okay. I have a, I have a plan to be um, on YouTube regularly as a as a Star Trek. I don't know what else to tell you other than that's what I'm going to do. I'm he's excited got, about got ears. What's that? He's got ears. I got ears and everything. I'm ready for it. It's going to be funny. And also biological. That's the whole point. I want to get on YouTube again without worrying about getting bounced. And so I think I've got an idea. Well, uh, I think I said it to you uh, last time you we were on. Say hi to YouTube for us. <laughs> I will. I will. 
Um, all right, guys. Well, last but not least, make sure you join us over at roundingtheearth.locals.com, where we have been having a fantastic discussion uh, this entire time. And there we are. Um, uh, and yeah, it's a great place to come um, either as a free member where you can just stay up to date on everything we're doing in this wonderful feed here, or you can sign up to support the show um, for as little as $5 a month and get access to our weekly locals exclusive supporters only live streams where we had a listening party for uh, an album that I had worked on at the beginning of the pandemic in March 2020. And it just wound up being a music sharing session. And it was a lot of fun. Uh, so if you want to hang out with us and do that kind of thing and uh, talk about stuff that uh, is, is better among a closer circle of compadres, roundingtheearth.locals.com. Um, and, and we're yeah. going to have a new show soon for subscribers. Uh, we've got we've got our uh, regular Wednesday night discussions, but um, we're, we're going to start doing one that's going to be more general topics uh, like the universe, education and everything. Well, there's going to be a lot of educational content um, uh, or you know, discussions of education philosophically and everything else but uh, i'll just go ahead and leave it at that for now okay well thank maybe, you guys. maybe i can throw out one more thing next week maybe we can think about next time we can think about doing there's like three papers now that have shown these ig4 antibodies and what they're doing maybe we can find like two or three of those and kind of cover them all together at once that's one idea just to throw out there it's on the top of my head yeah if you guys want to send those out in our email chain we can do that Okay. Sorry, Liam. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for watching, and we will see you. Uh, well, actually, I'll be back. I mentioned this to Matthew, so I'll announce here for the first time. I'm going to be back tomorrow with our friend Kristen Elizabeth to talk about her uh, fantastic article that's just come out, which a whole lot has happened since she posted it. Someone got arrested related to the, the Rise Above movement and the Azov Battalion. It's getting nuts out here. Yeah, I'm really curious about this. Um, I, I have felt like um, like things that were going on in this supposed like white nationalist movement uh, were were you know planned or seeded or something like that because uh, you you look at all the statistics, the survey statistics, and um, you know all all the measures of racism in the U.S. were going down, 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 down for decades, and then all of a sudden were beset with news stories and imageries about these new groups popping up and it feels pretty artificial. And so uh, I'm, I'm curious as to hear more, you know, she and I have talked a little bit, but uh, I want to hear some more. Well, there's your teaser for tomorrow. Uh, lots to catch up on. And um, I hope everybody comes and joins us for that. Thank you again so much. Any final words, Matthew, before I let you go? No, good show. Thank you. Good show. Okay, guys, thank you again. And um, I, uh, I appreciate every single one of you who's been participating on everywhere you've been participating on Rumble. There's been robust discussion on locals. Um, and uh, we had more viewers on Rockfin, I think, than we've ever had. Um, so thank you all so much. And we will see you tomorrow. Mm -hmm.